Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Love does not consist, a life, excuse me, does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Life, Jesus says, involves so much more than money, so much more than wealth, so much more than our possessions. Life does not, he says, consist of the abundance of possessions. Have you ever thought about what money can and cannot buy? Here's a partial list. Money will buy you a bed, but it cannot buy you sleep. It'll buy you books and computers, but it cannot give you wisdom. Money can buy you the finest food available, but it can't give you an appetite. Money can buy you all kinds of finery, beautiful clothing, beautiful jewelry, any kind of makeup and all those things, but it cannot give you beauty. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy romance, but not love. Money can buy you companions, but it cannot give you friends. Money can buy medicine, but not necessarily health. Money can buy you all kinds of luxuries, but not culture. Money can buy toys, but not enjoyment. We know a lot of people that have all kinds of toys, and they're miserable. Money can buy amusements, but not happiness. Money can buy religion, but not salvation. It can buy you the good life, but not eternal life. And it can take you anywhere you want to go in the world, but it can't take you to heaven. Today on the eve of Thanksgiving, we are being asked to wrestle here in Proverbs chapter 30 with a prayer that until this moment in the book of Proverbs was from an unknown, unheard of man named Agur. And it's also like the first prayer that is occurring in the book of Proverbs itself. So we've got a number of firsts that are happening right before us here in this book. Now remember, the theme of the book of Proverbs is what? It's to acquire wisdom. And this theme is introduced to us in the very beginning in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's repeated again one-third of the way through the book in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. As we come to the end of the book of Proverbs and we are introduced to this new biblical character, Agur, he tells us that he has not acquired wisdom in his life like he should have up to this point. He also tells us that he hasn't feared the Lord the way he should have done throughout his lifetime. And because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're learning that here. And he's saying, I haven't always looked to the Lord. I haven't always sought God first in my life. I haven't always made God the central part of my life and the central part of my possessions. I haven't always held God in high regard. I haven't always respected God above everything else in my life. I haven't been in awe of God. I haven't always viewed God as the source of all wisdom for life, which is what Proverbs teaches 
God is the source of all wisdom. So we're going to listen to Agur today. Before we even get into the specific prayer, verses 7 through 10, we're going to look a little bit at the context and the background here, starting with verses 1 through 3. But I'm going to read verse 1 for you, and we'll unpack this as we go. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacob, the, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to Ethel. I am weary, God, but I can prevail. In the original Hebrew language here, this word for inspired utterance means that there's authority in what is going to follow. What he is about to say, you need to listen to. We know it's the inspired word of God, so we need to listen to what it says. And in the original language, this oracle that's presented for us here is called a burden. So Agur is sharing his heart with us, basically saying, God, I'm worn out. I have come to the end of myself. I've lived my whole life doing things, as Frank Sinatra used to say, I did it my way. I've done it my way my whole life. And I've come to the conclusion that it hasn't worked out so well. It hasn't worked out so well. We come to verse 2 now. Surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. Now, he confesses his ignorance relative to God's wisdom. And the analogy here uh, of his confession of God's ways is, I'm like a dumb animal. We would say in our culture, dumb as an ox. Dumb as an ox. That's what he's saying. I've been as dumb as an ox my lifetime, not pursuing God's wisdom. And he goes on to say, too, that I don't even rise to the level of common human wisdom, much less the wisdom that God wants for me in my life. We might say in our world that, well, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box. There's plenty of other human beings that have more wisdom and more smarts and intellect than I do and figure things out better than I do. He says, I don't even rise to that level of common human wisdom, much less to the wisdom that God wants me to possess in my life. He's lamenting here his ignorance of God's wisdom. Then we come to verse 3. I have not learned wisdom. There's the confession. Uh, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. The whole purpose of the book, we start with that, is to, to fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And to gain understanding and knowledge of the Holy One. I haven't done that. I've gone through my life. I haven't done those things. I have truly missed out. I've missed this mark my entire life. And then in verse 4, to make his point, Agur is going to ask, Five rhetorical questions here that are obviously going to answer themselves showing how absurd it is for people to act in their life as if they can be the captains of their own fate, as if they can be the masters of their own destiny, that they can always on their own determine the best course of action. And basically, after a lifetime of doing things his own way, he has come to the conclusion that that does not work very well. And then he goes on to say here, who can explain the works of God? Or who possibly could compare themselves in this world to God? So each one of these questions he's going to ask for us here, or is going to ask, is going to depict and expose human 
limitations. And these questions are very similar to us because we've read about them in the past when we've looked at Job chapter 38 through chapter 41. We've also noticed that each one of these will appear uh, periodically throughout the book of Psalms. And right here in Proverbs chapter 8, they reference pretty much kind of the same list and and wrestle with these same questions. So here's what verse 4 says. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Anybody here? Any human beings that have done that? This is really uh, uh, prefacing Jesus being in heaven and coming down. And who ha- whose hands have gathered up the winds? Who can control the winds? Who, who determines which direction the wind blows and how much it blows and how hard it blows? The next question. Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak who contains the waters out there who who determines what kind of body of water it's going to be it's going to be fresh water is it going to be you know uh, uh, salt water what, what, what is it going to be an ocean a sea uh, a lake a pond who who determines those things who has established all the ends of the earth where every one of the continents uh, ends and where the waters begin and all of that. Who's done that? And what is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know. I've been the master of my own destiny, he's saying. I've been the captain of my own fate. And I've come to the conclusion I can't answer a single one of these questions, even though I've lived my life doing my own thing. Then we come to verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. God has given us His word. As Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8, that the grass withers and the flowers fade or they fall off, but the word of our God endures forever. We're in this season of change right now. Everything turned brown, the leaves fell off, our gardens dried up, and flowers all fell and faded. That's the season we're in right now, the sleep season. And seasons come and go and they change. But you know what? God's word never changes. It endures forever. It is flawless. And he says here that God is a shield. He's the protector of those who will take refuge in him. And then he's going to go on to say something unique here in the next verse. So you better not mess with God's flawless word. Verse 6. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. You know, we live in a world right now where a lot of eisegesis is happening. Now, I'm going to explain that for you in a moment. It's a big word, eisegesis. But before I explain that, I've got to explain another big word to you, and that's exegesis, which is really finding out what a particular passage in the Bible is teaching, trying to discover what the author's intention was within the historical context. It's what we've been laboring here to do this morning. Now, we haven't dove into Augur's background, and he's an Ishmaelite, and we haven't done all of those things. There's more things we could do, but time limits some of that. But we're building on this uh, intention and the author's intention within, within this historical context of the book of Proverbs. That's exegesis. 
eisegesis is when we read the Bible and we read what we want into the text. We don't let that historical context guide uh, our application in the present world. We read into the text what we want it to say. Often reading the Bible then from a 21st century perspective, from a Western civilization perspective, reading into the text our cultural values, and our cultural preferences. Basically, it boils down to making or finding the meaning that we want within that particular text in the Bible. Now, in the interviews that I've been involved in over the years on a denominational level, for somebody who's desiring to be ordained in our, ch- in our church, our denomination, and desiring to be licensed in our denomination, it becomes pretty obvious to me when someone is approaching the Bible from an eisegesis perspective perspective instead of from an exegetical one. And usually it shows up in the form of a cultural perspective, usually regarding the issue of marriage or human sexuality or sexual identity or gender-related issues. Sometimes it, it involves race or class or even the issue of war, but generally it falls under marriage, human sexuality, sexual identity, or gender-related issues. And in those sessions, I will often ask the person how they have come to this so-called enlightened position. And after they share that, I I usually share with them, well, how is it that the church for over 2,000 years didn't come to that position? How is it that God the Holy Spirit for two millennia have not led people to that understanding of the Bible, but now all of a sudden you have this enlightened position? How did you get there? Verse 6 is the voice of someone who's gone through life with their own personal eisegesis, placing their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own ways at the center above God's word, or even twisting God's word to do what they want. And God is the one, he says, though, because that doesn't work. I've done that lifestyle. That doesn't work. God is the one to look to and do not mess with what his word says. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. Now before we get to Agur's specific prayer here in verses 7 through 10, let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that God is the source of wisdom? Is that something that you hold dear in your heart? And do you believe that God's word is a place you should be looking regularly, daily, for God's wisdom, for God's understanding, to learn about the Holy One? See, God is the one who's to be feared. So do you live your life looking to God as the source of life? You know, when Agur here prays in these next verses, he is saying that this God of abundance needs to be the center of our lives. God is to be the center of our lives. And look at verse 7 here. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. He's going to have two prayer requests here. We're going to unpack those. We're going to talk about those in a few moments. And some people have said here that prayer is the most accurate test and reflection of a person's heart. You really want to see what someone's all about? You really want to get to know them? You really want to see the depth of their uh, spiritual life? See what they pray about. And so let me ask you, 
What is your prayer life right now reveal about your heart? What does it say about you? What does it reflect about you? For my money, I'm actually blessed by the humility that Agur reveals in this passage. And as we dive into the specific prayer in a few minutes, we're going to see humility oozing out of this text. The late Andrew Murray said, humility is the place of entire dependence upon God. It is the first and highest virtue of the created and the root of every virtue. That's pretty profound. Humility. He goes on to say, pride on the other hand, or rather, the loss of humility in our lives is the root of every sin and every evil. And that's pretty strong language there. T.B. Joshua says, true humility means total dependence upon God for everything. Fulton Sheen writes, the humble soul, listen to this, is always a thankful soul. Just like the prideful soul is known for its ingratitude. Thankful soul because of humility. Now our society actually teaches us a number of conflicting messages about dependence. One of them is that we need to learn to be independent. We need to learn to be able to stand on our own two feet. And children growing up are taught to do things for themselves, to become less and less dependent upon their parents and their families of origin. In fact, a person is even considered mature in our culture and even grown up Once they've reached the juncture where they can totally take care of themselves, where they can earn a living, they can provide their own shelter and their own food and their own clothing, where they can make their own decisions and they can accept the consequences of all of their choices and their actions in life. And these are all important in our culture. They're part of a healthy development into adulthood, into starting out the next generation, you know, to differentiate from one's parents and family. That's very important. But I also want you to understand all this training about being independent uh, can create a problem and a conflict. It's an obstacle between us and God. Because God wants us to become more and more dependent upon Him as we go through life. We're trained to be independent, and at the same time, we need to learn to be more dependent upon God. And independence uh, is, is, is an issue of pride. You know, it's an issue many times of, of people doing things their own way. So it's refreshing for me to hear on the other side uh, of Agur's a, a life, humility that he's now expressing. Now the second and the other conflicting message in our culture right now, and frankly in many countries around the world, is that we need to become more and more dependent upon the government. Okay, So we, we're supposed to be independent as individuals, but we're supposed to be more and more dependent upon our government to take care of us and do everything for us. What, the government's been established by God. There's no question about that. But it was never intended to take the place of God in our lives. God is to be central in our lives. And Agur's first request here in in verse 8 is that he would not uh, express any kind of falsehood or lies. Look at what it says. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Now during ancient times, skilled craftspeople would wear various hoods to depict their particular 
trade. You know, we're not the culture that invented the hoodie, okay? They had hoods that would depict a particular skill or a particular craft, uh, what trade they were involved in or belonged to. So if a person wanted to be misleading, if a person wanted to sneak in somewhere they shouldn't be, they could wear a hood that wasn't truly theirs. In other words, they could put on a false hood. And the prayer here is that in our lives there would be no falsehoods, that there would be no misrepresenting of ourselves, that there would be no making ourselves out to be more than we truly are, better than we truly are, more correct than we truly are, more spiritual or godly than we truly are, that we would be, wouldn't present ourselves as being more proficient or accurate than we are. No falsehoods, no more godly, no more spiritual, none of those, no more falsehoods. And no lying, which, by the way, is the cousin of falsehoods. Even just the little white lies or the little stretching of the truth. It's just not telling the whole truth. Agur says, God, I ask, first of all, my first request is that there's no falsehoods and there's no lying in my life. I've done that. I've been there. I've done it my own way this whole time, and it's not working. God, I'm asking that you help me. Get rid of those things. And then Agur offers an unbelievable prayer. He says, God, provide for me a balanced life of material blessings. Look at verse, the second half of verse 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Can you imagine praying this? That God would give you in this particular day and tomorrow and the next day and each day praying a prayer like that? God, don't give me poverty, but don't give me riches either, Lord. Just provide for me my daily bread. This prayer is referencing poverty, and it's not like the activity that was assigned to a private school uh, in Hollywood, California, where a whole lot of actors, children, you know, the movie stars and, and the directors and the producers, where their offspring attend school. And they were invited to do a composition on poverty. So one young girl in the ele upper elementary school level began her composition with this. Once there was a poor little girl. Her father was poor. Her mother was poor. Uh, her nanny was poor. Her chauffeur was poor. Her butler was poor. Everyone in this young girl's life was poor. No, that's not what this text is talking about here. It's, it's prayer for poverty, which means real poverty. What some would refer to as abject poverty poverty, the kind of poverty that leaves people with very few choices in life. And the choices people do get are hard choices that have to be made. Deciding between paying rent and buying food. Between going to the doctor or buying clothing. Between putting gas in a vehicle or paying the electric bill. And Agur is praying for God to keep him from this kind of poverty that would drive him to constantly focusing in on where his next meal is going to come from or where he would have to be watching his particular family living in a destitute situation and then begin wondering where God is in all of this, beginning to question the goodness of God and the providence of God. 
or to be forced into doing something desperate, something illegal, something immoral, something unethical, to try to gain some traction and earn a little bit of income, maybe steal something. I can't do those things. God, please protect me from this kind of poverty so I don't dishonor you. And by the way, poverty can come quickly in our world. It can come through diseases like COVID. I bet we all know somebody who's lost their business or their business has gone down so far that they're in a tough, desperate state right now. You know, diseases like COVID or the bigger one that's probably bankrupted more people and hurt more people over the years, cancer. Inflation, which is runaway right now, six plus percent probably. Declining prices, poor money management, bad decisions. A loss of a job or an extended layoff. A marital breakup. An unexpected pregnancy. A death of a spouse or a loved one. I could go on and on. There's all kinds of things that can shuttle people right into poverty very quickly in our world. And this prayer here of Agur is, Lord, for as long as I have left to live, give me no poverty, no abject poverty. And we probably all can agree with this prayer, right? Oh, I can pray that prayer. I can pray that, Lord, you know. But can we agree with the other part of this prayer, of the shunning wealth. And the truth is, when it comes to wealth, there is never enough. Remember over a century ago when John D. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? Wealthiest person uh, on the planet at that time. How much money is enough? And his famous answer was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. More. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'm going to invite you to turn there with me, chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, God warned the Israelites of the grave spiritual danger of wealth. And I'm going to read verse 1 just to get the context going here a little bit. It says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. So we pick it up now in verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That's our theme for Thanksgiving. God has given us all this. We've eaten, we're satisfied, we've blessed. We need to be what? We need to be praising God. And we better be praising God at this time of year. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Don't forget God in all of this. Okay, failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. Do you see why Andrew Murray said that, that, that uh, humility is the basis of thankfulness, a thankful heart? And pride is the source of ingratitude, okay? Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourselves, my power and strength, my hands have provided this 
well for me. I've done it. I'm the one who's accomplished this. I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. The truth be told, too often the more we receive from God, the less he receives from us. You know, in 1990, when I went to Romania on a, a missions trip, three months after the fall of Ceausescu, it rocked my theology. Because I went to be with people who in many respects were just about living in a third world scenario. And yet, they were so generous. They would give you the best food they had. They would go without eating to be hospitable to you. And some of that food, honestly, you would push it away here in our culture. You wouldn't even eat that food. And they were so filled with joy and so filled with love. These Christians were just amazing. And I came back thinking, we're the ones who are blessed? You know, we've got all these toys and all these things and yet you don't see that kind of gratitude and joy and, and happiness in people here that you would see among people who had absolutely nothing or very little by our standards. You know, I have a brother-in-law in sales, and he's very good at sales. In fact, some years, and he, of course, one of the things he's probably done wrong is he's bounced from company to company over the years. But I remember and sometimes he, in his large corporation he was working for at the time, he was fourth in the entire nation in sales. And he uh, got exotic trips and vacations that he won as a result of all that. But you know, in sales, you can also go pretty hungry. And there were years in there where it was destitute. In fact, Cindy and I helped support them during some of those years because they supported us in seminary and we felt blessed and honored to help them during those times. But he told me something very interesting. He said, Daryl, you know, I've always found it harder in my life to draw close to God in the good years than in the hard years. It's true, isn't it? God, when God blesses us, he tends to receive less from us than when we think things are a little harder for us. The danger of poverty is to become preoccupied with our physical needs. The danger of prosperity is to become spiritually impoverished. Lord, just provide for me my daily needs, and it will be good. So what's the answer to all of this? The answer is to have our lives centered on Christ. And Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what he said? We, we sing that very famous chorus. Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, it's okay to have some money as long as money is not the most important thing in your life. It's okay to have some possessions as long as possessions are not the most important thing in your life. It's also okay to work hard and to prosper if Jesus is first in your life and if you are honoring God with your wealth, Praise God, you get it. You have biblical wisdom. You understand what it's all about. And yes, it's not easy to pray this prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me my daily bread. And you can only pray that through if you've surrendered your life to God, where God is the central part of your life. 
and where in all things, all things in your life, you're seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Please know this Thanksgiving season that both riches and poverty can become obstacles to our relationship with God. And please remember as well that humility depend, is dependence upon God, just as pride is independence of God. The humble soul, thankful soul. You know, as we close today in prayer, and as our worship team is going to come forward right now to lead us in our final song, we're going to pray as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me here in a moment in unison as we pray as our Lord taught us to pray, which we affectionately call the Lord's Prayer. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.